Luke chapter 11, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis 2, uh, Revelation, and we just kind of crept into chapter 11 last time, and we remember that uh, Jesus was praying, and the disciples, as they watched him pray, they waited uh, politely until he had finished praying, and then they asked him that if he would teach them how to pray, even as John the Baptist had discipled his own disciples in that regard. And Jesus began his teaching related to pray, uh, prayer with what is known as the Lord's Prayer, as we looked at last time. But the Lord gives them, uh, Jesus does, gives them even more than they had asked for because he immediately follows uh, his, the model prayer that he gave to them and to us with three of the greatest encouragements related to prayer uh, that you could ever know. Uh, and uh, that's what we come into now. Uh, the prayer is not going to do us any good if we don't do uh, a prayer, and uh, so he knows the best way to produce that within our lives is the kind of encouragement that he has for us. And so uh, he said to them further in verse 5, which of you shall have a friend and go up to him at midnight, come to his house, and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves or three buns of, of bread. And the reason is given, a friend of mine has come at this late hour, all of the shops are closed, and he's come to me on his journey, and I have nothing in the house to set uh, before him. And uh, the man inside, the friend within the house, will say, uh, answer from within and say, uh, do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, and I cannot give, you, uh, give to you. So the image is a common image in um, that biblical time. They would bring in, uh, typically, into a home. They would bring in all of the animals, and then the family would be there too, and there would be kind of an upper level where the parents and the children would sleep, and then the animals would be uh, sleeping on the lower level. You, if you go to any kind of uh, agrarian, a country with an agrarian background, uh, for instance, go to Switzerland and look at the homes that are, have been refurbished in all modern times, and so they don't uh, do that today. But if you'll see the old, uh, old living quarters, always that lower section for the animals, and then uh, the human inhabitants of the home would, uh, would uh, live and sleep on an elevated level during the day the animals would be put out. Uh, and, and also, this is the situation. I don't want to get up out of bed. I'll wake up all of the kids and, and, uh, and all of this. And so, um, uh, I, I can't rise and give to you. And Jesus said, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his uh, persistence, he will rise and give him uh, as many as he needs. And so teaching the importance of persistence in prayer. Now, this is known as the parable of the persistent friend. And it is important to realize that some of the parables, Jesus will give a parable and that is affirming something that is before us. And so you, you just say, okay, this, uh, what he's giving us a parable about in a physical realm related to a spiritual reality, and we see how, yes, both of these are complementary. Uh, but uh, sometimes Jesus, as he does here, he gave parables, parables that were a contrast, uh, and that's what he does here. 
He is not teaching us. Certainly wouldn't be an encouragement to prayer if uh, the Lord was teaching us here that when we pray, we pray to a God uh, who we're always bothering and uh, can't come to him at night and can't come to him any kind of an inconvenience time and so, inconvenient time. And so when you pray to God, basically he's like this grouchy friend that won't get out of bed and meet your need. Now it's a contrast here. And what, what he's revealing to us here is the heart of God the Father, the one that we bring our needs to. He is the polar opposite of what we see uh, described here. The heart of the one that we bring our prayers and our prayer uh, needs to. And so the encouragement related to <clears throat> our prayers to God, you can hardly, <clears throat> excuse me, here we go again. But you can hardly, <clears throat> excuse me, one But you can hardly, I, I think, as you look in the Scriptures as an encouragement to prayer in this very light is because the Bible teaches that because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, that when we approach the throne of God in prayer and in intercession, that He has turned that throne into a, a, a throne from which only grace and mercy uh, proceeds. This is the heart of the God that we bring our needs to. He moves on in, in the second great encouragement to prayer um, in verse 9 when Jesus said, and so I say to you, ask and it will be given you, seek and you will, uh, and you will find, knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. And so ask, seek, knock and the, kind of the anachronym that makes it easy to remember is the ask that is there. Um, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. There's simply, in, in my thinking, there is simply no greater encouragement to prayer uh, than what God, Jesus gives us here, and that is the promises associated uh, with prayer to us as Christians. Well, I mean, this, what a promise this is. Ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Um, any Christian who actually believes that to be true and not just kind of uh, 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 plaque fodder uh, in the Bible, well, we would hardly find ourselves uh, ceasing to pray and to pray about everything. And yet this is the level of encouragement that, that God, uh, that Jesus gives to us related to uh, prayer, incredible promises. Now it is important to, in saying this, because uh, we could all just do a group prayer and say that when we, um, Lord, we ask here tonight that when we leave this building that every one of our cars will be transformed uh, into uh, a brand new uh, Lexus SUV. Would that be all right for you? Uh, for most of us, it, it would anyway if we could afford the insurance and the maintenance. Another problem, all illustrations break down. Um, so he isn't saying that kind of a thing. It is important to realize who he's speaking to. And he is speaking to disciples. 
And disciples are described in the Bible as uh, ones who deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow after him. So it, it encourages tremendous boldness in, in our prayer. But it does not allow us to take this promise where uh, some positive confession uh, or health and wealth teachers take it today where they say you can ask anything and you'll get it and seek everything and, and you'll receive it and knock and everything will be opened unto you. God didn't give us prayer in order to put us in the driver's seat of our relationship with Him. I would fear that kind of power if Jesus gave that to us. I have prayed some of the most misdirected and knuckleheaded prayers in my Christian life that you would ever want to, and, and I thought this was the very best that could happen in the situation, and the Lord always topped it if he ever said no to something that, that I was praying to him. And so because we are a materialistic society, we almost always think of asking, seeking, knocking, and, and uh, in a materialistic realm. And so these positive confession teachers will, uh, you know, ask for a bigger this and a bigger that, and God is compelled by this passage to give that to you. But He's not turning the steering wheel of, of our, our life uh, over to us in, uh, in prayer. There is that uh, denial of self, taking up my cross, following after Him, there is that recognition that as we ask and we seek and we knock, that there is a submission to His will. And, uh, and, and that whatever we would ask, again, so often we ask just in the sense of materialistic. We look at a verse like that and go, wow, I got some things I need. And yet he, He's saying it to disciples so that we can bring any need in our life. He assumes a spiritual mindedness about uh, really kind of cashing in on this promise. And that is that we would take this ask and this seek and this knock into our relationship with the Lord, into our ministry with the Lord, into our service uh, for the Lord, into our influence within our communities and within our homes and workplaces and schools for the Lord with the confidence that the Lord will bless us in that way. So I don't want to take and, and give this, these powerful encouragements to prayer that he gives here and in any way uh, back you off from them, but with the recognition that uh, it, it isn't for the fulfillment of my carnal desires as a Christian. And all requests that we make of God are, are given out of a surrender uh, to Him. And there's always the recognition that if I ask something of God and He doesn't give that uh, to me, then what He is up to is even better than what um, I'm thinking could be the best in that situation. But it takes time for that uh, to occur. But there should be this great boldness in these promises to ask and to seek and to knock with the promises uh, that, that are associated with them. And then he goes on with the, the third uh, promise that he gives, uh, <clears throat> gives here is, in, is in, in the realm of uh, 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 that, that God, when we bring a need to Him, that He will only use our prayers to produce good and to give good within, within our lives. He said, if a son, imagine you're a little boy coming to you, your son, and uh, asks for bread, would any father among you give him a stone? Well, come on. 
I mean, you'd want to deck a guy like that. I mean, that would be a terrible father. Or if he asks for a fish, you give him a serpent instead of a fish. He says to the friends, now listen, he, I, I, he gets the cutest look on his face. When he comes and he asks me for fish and I give him a serpent, watch what's going to happen here. Well, no, it's not going to, it's a terrible father. Uh, or if he asks for an egg, will he then offer him a, a scorpion? And the rhetorical questions, it is obviously uh, not. And so, if you then, being evil as fathers, mothers too, um, uh, evil in comparison to the heart of God, uh, the best of our hearts as parents toward our children, and there is a desire, a normal desire, and uh, innate desire in the heart of a parent uh, to want the very best for their children, and yet our desire for the very best for our children is evil in comparison uh, to uh, God's desire for those same things in, in our lives as His children. If you being evil then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who uh, ask Him? And so here is this uh, tremendous encouragement in the goodness of God that when we ask for something of Him, uh, He will always uh, respond to that asking uh, with a, 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 um, a, a desire and an intention of, of blessing us. In other words, uh, Jesus is saying that our Heavenly Father is more eager to bless us in our lives than uh, even we are, far more eager than even we are to bless our children. And we have a great desire uh, to bless our children and do what is uh, best uh, for them. And I do like this passage, this, the account of this in Luke's gospel where uh, Jesus closes it off by saying, and how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And there's nowhere is that this uh, promise here more important than our prayers uh, for the Holy Spirit in our lives, for the provision of power of wisdom, of strength, and so forth. Anytime we ask for uh, a greater fullness of the Holy Spirit, work of the Holy Spirit within our lives, God will always, always uh, answer uh, that prayer. And, and uh, uh, verse 14, and he was uh, casting out uh, a demon, and, uh, and it was a mute. So here we have a demon-possessed man uh, who is mute as a result of the demon possession. And so it was when the demon had gone out, Jesus had cast the demon out uh, of the mute man that he then spoke and the multitudes marveled. And so here is this powerful demonstration uh, of God, of Jesus, of his, his deity, the fact that he is the Messiah in front of the crowd, and the crowd got it. I mean, it's just jaw-dropping for them, when it, and that's what the idea of marveled is, is they're just left speechless at his, his authority uh, over uh, the, the demonic realm. Now, in, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew handles this in a little uh, fuller measure. And uh, we're told there in Matthew uh, chapter 12, verse 23, and all of the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? And so the crowd came to the only conclusion, uh, only honest conclusion, 
that you can come to related to Jesus in terms of this kind of authority, and that is that He uh, must be uh, the Messiah, the promised Savior uh, of, uh, of the world. Now, that sets it up for what happens next here in verse 15 in terms of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They are now threatened by the assessment of the crowd that Jesus is uh, is Messiah, is the promised Savior of the world. We're told in, again in Matthew's gospel, uh, as, as we would see it here in verse 15, that these are specifically uh, Pharisees that uh, begin this, uh, this interaction and accusation against Jesus. And so when they sense they're losing control of the crowd, they're losing people's, uh, their authority over them as people are turning to Jesus, uh, then uh, they can't very well deny that he performed the miracle or that he performed the deliverance and uh, because everybody could see that. And so they came up right on the spur of the moment. This is how wicked their hearts were. Uh, some of them said, uh, and they announced to the crowd that they're losing, uh, losing to Jesus. He casts out demons by Belzebub, the ruler of the demons. And so, uh, they said, no, 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 this isn't uh, a God thing that's going on. What's happening here uh, is that he is doing this uh, in the power uh, of, of the devil. Now, you, that's crossing a pretty significant line uh, here. They're do, they are uh, drawing close to what the other Gospels describe as the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So they ascribe this uh, this deliverance uh, to the power of the devil in Jesus. I mean, that's, how, how determined are you not to believe in Jesus than, than to, do, uh, to do that? Now, there was a second group in, in the, uh, that had witnessed that, and others uh, at the same time, they tested Jesus and they sought from uh, him a sign from heaven. And he'll, he addresses the first group uh, immediately, and then he addresses the second group a little further along uh, in the passage there in, in verse uh, 29. But Jesus now, uh, concerning this accusation that he was doing uh, these deliverances on, uh, on basis of the power of the devil, he knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a, how, uh, a house falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by uh, Belzebub. And so, Jesus responds to this accusation with a, a fourfold response. And the first thing that he does in these two verses is he points out to these Jewish religious leaders that the accusation is completely illogical, that no kingdom advances itself, no kingdom expands itself by fighting against itself. And, uh, and, and dividing within itself. And he's simply making the point that Satan isn't going to participate in the destruction of his own kingdom. And so utterly illogical, and they knew it with the accusation that they made. And then second in verse 19, he said, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by the devil, by whom do your sons cast them out? 
Therefore, they will be your judges. And so Jesus uh, confronts them with the inconsistency of their accusation against him. Now, when he talks about your sons, he's not talking about biological sons necessarily, but they're Pharisees, they're rabbis, talking about their disciples, their followers. And there were uh, followers of the Pharisees and the different religious sects that uh, went out and they were part of deliverance ministries. And apparently they had some success because Jesus said they cast out demons. And so uh, what Jesus is saying is, wait a second, you've you've got to be consistent in in this. You can't say that your sons and your disciples are casting out demons in the power of God and then willy-nilly declare that when I cast out demons that I'm casting them out in the power of, of the devil. You've either got to come to the conclusion that both of us are casting out demons in the power of God, or both of us are casting them out in the power of, uh, in the, power of the devil, but you can't split the way that you're splitting uh, things here. And they absolutely believed in uh, the deliverance of people on the part of their followers to be of God. And so Jesus confronted them with that. These are very smart men. I mean, they were, they were tracking completely with what, what it was that he was saying. And then third, he told them in verse 20, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come to you in, in speaking of himself. And he gives an image that was familiar to everyone in, in, in those days. When a strong man, he's got a fortress, uh, he's fully armed, and he guards his own palace, and his goods are uh, in peace. And so if you had someone who was powerful, uh, what would he do? He would, uh, he would build a fortress or a home. He would put guards on the outside, and there would be this progressive kind of protection uh, uh, that, that would begin on the outside, endeavoring to keep what was most prized of all by, uh, by the man that, that was it, found in the center of his home or in the center of his, his fortress. And, and so this is the image uh, that he gives. A strong man will do that in protecting what belongs to him. Uh, but uh, that strong man runs into a problem. But when a stronger than he comes and overcomes him and all of his defenses, uh, that stronger man then takes uh, from him all of his armor and, uh, in which he is trusted and divides his spoils. And so Jesus is saying what you've witnessed here in, in all of this, the only logical conclusion here is that, and the spoils, the thing that Satan uh, treasures the most and puts in the innermost room of his house are demon-possessed people, what he, what he owns in that regard. And so Jesus says, what you've seen me do is you've seen me walk right into Satan's kingdom and not deal uh, with a moat or some periphery defense. I walked right into his living room. And that's where I went to pull this man out of his control and deliver him of that demon. And what you're seeing here is an evidence of my greater power as the only conclusion to why this man 
was delivered of his demon possession. It must really be something to, to see in the spiritual realm what is required in order for a demon-possessed person to be delivered of that demon. And, and here Jesus going right into who knows what kind of defenses around what individual, how long they've been demon-possessed, how many demons are involved, and he goes in and he just takes the person out. And that is what, exactly what they had seen. Jesus said, the devil is strong, uh, but I am the stronger, and that's what you have witnessed, is the authority of my kingdom over the demonic kingdom. And then he went on and he, he said to them, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me uh, scatters. In other words, just as Satan's kingdom is not divided, uh, God's kingdom is not divided either. And so he's telling these Jewish religious leaders, you're either in or you're out. There can't be any neutrality in terms of uh, those that are part of my kingdom and those that are a part uh, of the kingdom of Satan. And, and essentially, Jesus is telling the Pharisees here uh, what side their rejection of him uh, puts them uh, on. And on the devil's side, in, in resisting him, they were the ones that were being used by the devil there uh, and, and by Satan's power, and not Jesus in that particular, uh, uh, particular uh, scene. And then uh, Jesus warned them in, in verse uh, 24. He said, when an unclean spirit, a demonic spirit, he is cast out, delivered out of a man, uh, that demonic spirit will then uh, goes through dry places seeking rest. Uh, the one thing we see continually in, in terms of, uh, of demons is, is the reality is revealed to us in the Bible is that they do like to possess something. And ideally, they like to possess a human being. And, um, and so, here is this demon. He got cast out of this person, uh, so to speak. And uh, he starts to look around for another human being that he can uh, have some kind of a, a ability to get a foothold in and demon-possess uh, demon them. And he can't find a, a candidate for that. And so, he says to himself, the demon does, I will return to my house, my former uh, habitation from which I came. I'm going to go back to that same person, and I'm going to repossess them. And, uh, and then just to make sure uh, the demon, uh, uh, for some insurance, to make sure he doesn't get bumped out again, uh, he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And then they then enter that individual, and they dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. The point that Jesus is making here is the only protection from uh, demon possession is for uh, our house, this body, to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to belong to God. And one of the great lessons of the passage is that Christianity is not about a reformation of the flesh or just cleaning up the flesh, but it's about a transformation of our lives by the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. It is only the only foolproof um, 
uh, defense against being demon-possessed is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that happens by way of a spiritual birth, by becoming a Christian. As John said, greater is he that is uh, in you, that is the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. And so the importance of anyone that would be uh, delivered of a demon or the importance that anyone that isn't saved and indwelt by the Spirit, the recognition that in this demonic realm they're always looking uh, for uh, some other human being to indwell, and it is only believing in Jesus Christ that, that protects us from uh, being uh, demon-possessed. And it happened as he spoke these things uh, that a certain woman from the crowd, she raised her voice and she said to him, uh, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which uh, nursed you. And so uh, here is this woman. She's so obviously very, very excited about what she finds herself in the middle of here, uh, seeing what Jesus did in delivering this man, and then also the teaching of what he's teaching. She wants to say something nice to him. She wants to be complimentary here, and, uh, and so she, uh, she praises his mother, praises the blessing of being his mother, the, uh, the womb that bore you and the breasts which uh, nursed you. And so she declares it in front of the entire crowd. And the interesting thing is, is that Jesus doesn't uh, let that sit. Um, that, a lot of things that were probably said that he didn't correct. But this particular exclamation that she, she made, uh, he does find it necessary to, uh, to um, uh, correct it. And so he said to her, more than that, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Um, he is not saying that the, the womb that bore him <clears throat> and the, the breast that nursed him were not blessed not saying that Mary wasn't blessed as a mother and, and, and being uh, his mother at all, but saying that there is a greater blessing to be found uh, in life uh, in simply hearing the Word of God and then keeping it. That's where, that's the blessing uh, for sure because of the quality of life that is produced for us, the confidence of eternity that becomes ours uh, as well. It is interesting to me that Jesus here, he kind of uh, nips in the bud uh, any uh, veneration of Mary as a uh, means of spiritual blessing. And instead, he says, you want spiritual blessing, then go to where uh, it is to be found, and that is in hearing the Word of God uh, and uh, obeying it. And then now he comes in verse 29 to this second question that <clears throat> was asked there in verse 16, others testing him, and they sought from him a sign from heaven. We know from some of the other Gospels, again, Matthew is helpful for us uh, in, in this regard, that the Jewish religious leaders came to Jesus, and they were asking him uh, for a sign. And what they were asking for was they were asking him for a sign as an, a, a definitive um, a, a, a example or a definitive sign uh, to reveal him to be the Son of God and to be the Messiah. Now, the, the problem, and Jesus gets to it in just a moment, is they had signs galore. Uh, 
Uh, they had the sign of his perfect life. They had a sign of his miracles. They had a sign of him raising people from the dead. They had the sign of, uh, of uh, delivering people of, uh, from demon, demon possession. They had the sign of the fulfillment of scriptures. They had more signs than you could ever want as an evidence of the fact that his claims to be the son of God and to be a Messiah were true. But they kept asking for another sign in the hopes that they would finally bring him to a place where uh, there was something that he couldn't do, some sign that he couldn't perform, and then they could use that uh, as a reason for their own rejection of him and then offer a reason for rejecting him as Messiah to the Jewish audience as well. And so they kept probing, they kept uh, prompting and prompting their hearts are uh, asking and asking and their, their hearts are are uh, very, uh, you know, uh, uh, dirty as it relates to what they were up to. And so while the crowd was uh, thickly gathered together, Jesus began to say, he said, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Again, other gospels deal with this more fully. And Jesus goes on to say that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the idea is three days and three nights only, uh, and then he would raise from the dead. And so the three days and three nights between his crucifixion and his resurrection. He was giving them the sign of his resurrection as the single greatest and the final sign that he offered to them as a, as a, a verification of his claims. The interesting thing is signs are not a, they are not a good basis for faith. They're not the highest uh, basis for uh, faith at all. The Word of God is the highest foundation and most solid foundation for our faith. Jesus, when he uh, is raised from the dead, uh, did all of these Pharisees believe in him? No, they didn't. None of them did. And so it's just a game uh, that, that they, were, uh, they were playing. And then uh, Jesus takes and he uh, speaks to them uh, about uh, those who will one day rise up in judgment uh, against them for their unbelief. He said, the queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba from the time of, of Solomon's uh, reign, uh, she will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to uh, hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. And so takes us back into the Old Testament. And the queen of Sheba, she came a distance of 1,200 miles across northern Africa to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And here Jesus has come from the glory of heaven itself to them. No journey on their part. He's come to them. And, and to give them a wisdom that is greater than Solomon, and they won't have anything to do with it. And he's saying, in the day of judgment, this woman is going to stand up, and, uh, and, uh, and her faith, uh, uh, based upon a lesser thing, 
will expose uh, the shame of your unbelief. And then he mentions a second uh, group that will rise up and condemn the unbelief of that generation, these religious leaders. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Remember, Jonah, when he went to Nineveh, uh, he, uh, he wasn't that thrilled about going there. And they've uh, got to do this, the whole fish thing and everything to get him willing. He's trying to escape uh, bringing any kind of hope to the Ninevites because of their cruelty, and especially their cruelty to the Jews. And uh, so when uh, Jonah is ultimately uh, spit up on dry land, as the Bible puts it, I would lo have loved a, a, a selfie of that. And, uh, um, but, you know, some of this technology is a little late, really, for me on, on some fronts. Uh, but, uh, and then he goes into the city and he walks from one end of the city to the other. And you remember his message, 40 days and then comes destruction. 40 days and you're all going to die. So, uh, and he did from one end of the city uh, to the other. And marvel of marvels, the one thing Jonah didn't want to have happen is the people of the, the king and the people of the city of Nineveh, they repented of their sin. And they turned to God, and they believed in, uh, in God. And, and they did it at a graceless message uh, proclaimed by a mere man, a message from God, but a mere man. And here you have this generation and the Jewish religious leaders rejecting a greater message, a message of grace, of hope, how to be saved, how to be delivered from destruction, and to have that message delivered by the very Son of God. Every single person in that ancient city of Nineveh that turned to God at that time in the day of judgment will stand up and judge the unbelief of that generation that was uh, rejecting Jesus um, at that time. Then Jesus moves on and he uh, uh, gave them the parable of the lighted lamp. He said, no one when he is lit a lamp uh, puts it in a secret place. You don't put it into closets uh, or you don't put it under a basket, but you put it on a lampstand. You put it out in the room or these little uh, cutouts that they would have uh, in a wall in order that it would give the maximum light. We are, uh, uh, you know, we live in this modern age and so uh, fuel is relatively inexpensive. So we can heat these homes and uh, it's only because of the kind of technology that we have today that we can build these glass houses and somehow uh, keep them warm. And so uh, back in those days, the windows are very, very small. And so once the sun went down, uh, and even with the sun up, the, the inside of the house was, was dark. And so you wanted to maximize what a, a, a lighted lamp uh, could do. So no one would hide it or, or minimize its effect. And... Um, uh, uh, that in order that you put it on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. And he said, the lamp of the body is the eye, and therefore when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light, but when your eye is bad, your body is also uh, full of darkness. And Jesus is saying that the reason they didn't allow the truth of what they were seeing 
with their eyes concerning what Jesus was doing and coming to a proper conclusion concerning him was the evilness of their own heart, was the darkness uh, of their own heart. What they had was diseased eyes because of the wickedness of their own heart. And so their unwillingness to see him for who and what he was clearly uh, as it was revealed in his life and in, in his teaching and which was so clear to so many other people was due to their uh, spiritually diseased eyes, eyes that were unwilling to accept what was obvious to them uh, because uh, of the wickedness of their own uh, heart. And Jesus said, therefore, and here is the lesson of this parable, therefore take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. And if then your whole body is full of light, having no dark part, the whole body will be full of light as when uh, the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. And so he exhorted them to examine themselves related to their rejection of him and their unbelief. And the point that Jesus was making was uh, that their rejection of him was not a, any revelation of some kind of wrongdoing that they had found in him, much less being uh, a, a, an agent of the devil, but their rejection came out of the wickedness of of their own uh, heart. And the problem wasn't with the signs that uh, God had given uh, to them. The problem was that their eyes were missing uh, all of the light of this evidence that other people were seeing very clearly, seeing Jesus for who uh, and, and what he was and, and that he is. The rejection on the part of any person, the rejection of any human being of Jesus as Savior, as Messiah, as the Son of God, it always has its root into some wickedness within, uh, within us or within a human being. And uh, uh, John, uh, Jesus, when he was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, uh, he, uh, he spoke John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he went on to say that the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world. The reason he didn't is because the world is already condemned. There's a need for further condemnation. Our own sin condemns us. But then he went on to speak about those who love darkness and they will not come to the light. And, when, and if you possessed concerning any person that has rejected Christ, if you had the perspective that God has, that Jesus has, into their hearts, you would find that it is not something intellectual. Uh, it, it is always something moral. It is always something spiritual. It is some evil that the person will not give up. And, and, uh, and if you, in witnessing to someone and, and, and they say, no, I don't want anything to do with that, I reject that and all, and, and you, you could ask them the question, what is it that Jesus' teaching in his life would require you to give up if you became his follower that you're unwilling to give up? And that's, that's, that's where the problem is. And it can be sex, drugs, and rock and roll over here on this end, or it can be uh, a love for reputation or prominence. 
uh, or job title or arrogance or pride on the other end of the spectrum. But it's always evil. It's always uh, darkness. And the problem is with the inside that doesn't allow for spiritual clarity to recognize Jesus for who He is and, and with the clarity that everybody else can uh, see with Him. And so, uh, in verse 36, the solution to their kind of uh, dark, uh, darkness-filled life or darkness-filled body was, he was saying, to invite Him into their lives, to invite the light into their lives. And if you want true spiritual life, then you've got to invite the soul, a source of spiritual light in. And then uh, 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 the, uh, Jesus was invited uh, for a meal in verse 17, and, and as he was speaking, a certain Pharisee asked him uh, to dine with him. Would you come into my house and, and to eat? And so Jesus uh, went in and he sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that Jesus had not first washed before dinner. Now, be careful to realize this has nothing to do with COVID. Uh, has nothing to do with personal hygiene. I mean, remember back in the spring when we were like uh, being told to wipe down our bags from the grocery store or whatever. So, um, we've come a long way and we haven't come a long way. But anyway, I digress. You didn't come here to hear about that. So, it had nothing to do with personal hygiene. Nothing wrong with washing our hands before we eat. It's a wise practice. But he's talking about a ceremonial practice that the religious Jews had come up with on their own. And the idea was, it became a tradition of the Jews, the idea was that as you would go out into the marketplace or out into the highways and the byways and you'd be brushing up against people and touching all kinds of things and all, that when you would come in to eat, they had a ceremonial washing where uh, you would hold your hands up like this and someone would pour water uh, on, on your hands. So always careful to bend it in such a way that the water would drip off your wrist and then your hands down and the water would be poured off and come off the end. And, and it was a it was initially uh, initiated in order to, as a reminder that we are to be a pure people in an impure world. Well, nothing wrong with that. If that's what, uh, if you want to wear a, a rubber band around your wrist to remind you of that, that's fine. But they institutionalized it. And it had nothing to do, God didn't command it, this was their own tradition. And uh, they institutionalized it, and now it became a, um, uh, a marker for being spiritual or unspiritual or being uh, really serious about God or not really being serious about God. And Jesus disregards it completely. And you see him continually through the Gospels. He, 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 he pay, he, there's no tip of the hat at all to the traditions of man. And, and I, I, I like to think, I certainly try, and I know as a pastoral staff, we endeavor to do that. But uh, here you have a legalism, and a legalist is the person that thinks if God said, uh, do this, then if you do 10 times that, then it's better. And, and, that, and so they make Christianity harder than it actually uh, is. But the, but the absolute staying away from man-made traditions, because no matter how well-intentioned they might be, even as the origins of this was well-intentioned, 
But then it becomes a ceremony, then it becomes a mark of spirituality, and now it becomes a distraction from a relationship with God. And so Jesus uh, pays no courtesy to it at all. He completely uh, disregards it and, uh, uh, and, uh, and continues forth uh, in, in the meal. But he knows that he's been uh, disdained here and, uh, and uh, that he's being judged in this whole uh, situation. And so he then said to him, and, uh, and, and there's more than one Pharisee present, multiple pre- uh, Pharisees present at that meal. He said, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. How's your lunch going? No, there's clarity. Again, nobody talked to these people like this. But they knew it was true. They knew it was true. You're going to judge me on a tradition, and yet you're hiding behind. And that's what happens. These traditions become the mark of spirituality rather than what God has said in his word. They displace it. And he said, foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? but rather give alms of such things as you have, and then indeed all things are clean to uh, you. And so he likens them to a dish or a, a glass that is clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. You know, one of the uh, sinking kind of experiences in life is to go to a restaurant and order a nice tea or order a, a, a cola of some kind and then uh, begin to drink and then get down to the bottom. You've, you drank an entire 75, 72 ounces of it and, uh, or whatever you, you purchased, a backpack of it and, uh, with a straw. And, but, but then you look down in the glass and there's a glob of something. You know the feeling, right? And, and, and there it is, and then the, your first thought is, I hope that's on the outside and not on the inside. Why? Because we recognize cleanliness, given a choice, is much more important on the inside than it is on the outside. And they were giving all of their attention to the external things, and there's nothing wrong with an external holiness, but they were given to to acting, giving the appearance of being one thing outwardly and yet being full of greed and full of wickedness. A Pharisee, we become a Pharisee when there is a great separation uh, between the appearance that we give spiritually of ourselves outwardly uh, when what we are inwardly is nothing of the sort. Not talking about struggling with sin and growing in sanctification and all, all of that. There's humility in our lives because we're all dealing with that. But this is the kind of thing that, that uh, they were doing, giving uh, the illusion of kind of perfection and all. And God said, but Jesus said, I can see your heart and it's full of covetousness and it's uh, full of greed and, and full 
of wickedness. And so he rebukes them for uh, focusing only on the outside and uh, failing uh, or neglecting the inside. Of course, Christianity is this wonderful opposite of what religion is, certainly a wonderful opposite of what legalism is, and that is the most holy influence in the entire creation, the person of the Holy Spirit, comes inside our lives and begins to cleanse us from the inside uh, out. And then you end up with a clean inside and a clean outside as well. But nobody ever becomes holy or sanctified or Christ-like working it from the outside in. It always the priority is inside um, and, then, uh, and then out. He goes on to condemn them, uh, and, 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 but he gives them the exhortation in verse 41, give alms of such things as you have, and indeed uh, all things are uh, uh, clean to you. And so uh, he said, you want to start to work on the inside, start giving away uh, alms to the poor and helping people out rather than accumulating money uh, in your greed. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe of mint and uh, rue and all manner of herbs from your garden. And so they would go out into their garden, they'd pull it out, the herb garden, come inside the kitchen and they would cover up 90% of it, and then they would blow away the 10% as, uh, as an offering uh, to the Lord. And so he says, you're very uh, particular about this kind of thing, but what you pass uh, on is you pass by judgment and the love of God. These you ought to have done uh, without leaving the others undone. Nothing wrong with the tithing. He doesn't condemn it of the herbs. But he said, you're so busy tithing of your herbs that you have no sense of proportion in terms of what's important. Uh, you've lost uh, sight of uh, the, uh, the importance of justice and the love of God. And the Jewish religious leaders were known for uh, being harsh and cruel uh, to, uh, to people. And so the, the lack of proportion in their lives. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and you love the greetings in the marketplace, uh, uh, speaking to them of their, their love for recognition, their love for self-exaltation. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, uh, you are like graves which are not seen, and, uh, when, and the men walk over them uh, are uh, not aware of them. Under the law of Moses, to touch a dead body was uh, to be rendered uh, ceremonial unclean uh, for the day. And, uh, and it was a reminder to the Jews that death was a consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve in, in the Garden uh, of Eden. So you kind of got isolated and made that a meditation for the rest of the day. And then the Jews took that a little bit further, and they declared that if you not only touched a body, uh, if you touched their tomb or even the ground in which they were buried in, that that would render you unclean as well. And Jesus is saying to these Jewish religious 
religious leaders uh, that they are spiritually dead and they're like bodies that have been buried into the ground physically, so to speak, and people are walking over them not even knowing uh, that they are a, a, a spiritually uh, dead in a tomb in and of themselves, and they're becoming ceremonially unclean as a result of, of the contact with them. And he's telling them, basically, you are not a safe spiritual influence in people's lives. You think you're helping people. You're just defiling people but they don't know that it's happening uh, to them because you present yourself as, as the experts and as the, the pros. And then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. I, I want this guy's name. I want to meet this man someday. You know, when you've been put down, sit down. That's the old saying. And so you, I mean, if you're in a classroom or you're in a business setting or whatever and somebody's get, really getting the one-two there, you know, raise your hand in that environment. You look down at your shoes and, and hope that he doesn't notice you, the boss or whatever. But no, this guy's, teacher, you're reproaching us also. And Jesus said, fine. Woe to you also, lawyers, and they're not talking about civil lawyers or criminal lawyers, but talking about lawyers who are experts in the law of Moses. For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You, you are an expert in the law. You make the law of God harder than it actually is, and you put that on people, but you don't do that for yourself. And I think that's a, for any of us that minister the Word of God, there will always be a gap between um, our own lives practically and the standard that we teach from God's Word. That's always going to be there because we're always going to be growing as Christians, no matter who we are. But that gap should always be narrowing and never widening. And no Bible teacher should uh, put uh, greater demands or claims upon an audience than they're willing to bear and make a part of their own Christian life as well. But they, uh, they were doing that. Woe to you, for you build tombs of the prophets, uh, build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them and you build their tombs. And therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all of the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. And so uh, here Jesus rebukes the spiritual self-deception uh, of the lawyers. And what they uh, told themselves was, yes, nobody can deny in Jewish history that we were pretty rough on the prophets. Uh, there wasn't a prophet that the Jewish people seemed to like. They either killed all of them or heavily persecuted all of them or imprisoned all of them because they came and they spoke for God and denounced the sins 
that the, the people were practicing. And so, to, in order to put a, to give an appearance that we're nothing like our fathers, we would never have done that to the prophets if we had been alive at that time. And as proof of that, we will build monuments to the prophets. And, and to gain that separation. And Jesus says, there's just really one big problem with your plan. And one big problem with your self-deception. For as hard as the Jewish leaders, religious leaders and the Jewish people were on the priests and the prophets in the Old Testament, none of them can hold a flame to what you are about to do. You say you are different, but you are planning the death and crucifixion of the very one that these prophets came into the world to prophesy of. And he confronts them with that self-deception. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, and you did not enter yourself the knowledge of salvation, and those uh, who were entering, uh, you, uh, entering in, you hindered. And he declares that you are not only not a help to people spiritually, uh, to uh, salvation and a relationship with God, you are a hindrance to people. There's all kinds of groups in the world that would fit into that category. You've got that, that uh, claim to be doing that. Mormon, I'm not even talking about cult or, or non-Christian religions, but Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, in some aspects, the Roman Catholic Church. You, you can almost uh, uh, die waiting to hear the gospel in a Roman Catholic Church and the need to be saved solely based upon a faith in Jesus Christ and that it's a, it's a gift. It's a sacrament system. It's a works uh, system. And how often a person will grow up, maybe even in an Orthodox church of some kind, and it isn't until they get out of that religious system and some friend shares with them how it is that you're born again, and they say, why in the world am I first hearing this? I've been going to church my entire life. And so there's still religious leaders that are a greater obstacle to people coming to know the truth about God and a relationship with Him then they are a help. And he said these things to them, and the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, they apparently lost their appetite. Uh, they began to then assail him uh, vehemently, uh, verbally, and, and to cross-examine him about many things, and trying, uh, lying in wait for him, and seeking to catch him in something that he might say that they might accuse him. So they start to yell and ask him questions and hoping that they can trip him up in answering one of those questions. And then again, still searching for a reason to reject him as the Messiah. And if they could just get that, then they could provide that same excuse to the multitudes as well. And here they are this far along in the ministry and life of Jesus, and they still haven't found it yet. And they never would, and no one ever will. Let's stand together, and we'll close here tonight and look to pick things up in chapter 12 uh, next time. Father, thank you for this time again in your word, and thank you for this revelation of your Son. And we pray that this time, that you've used this time and continue to use it in our lives as the evening unfolds to 
cut away from our hearts anything that needs to be cut away. Encourage and build up in our lives, Lord, things that we've read about here and, uh, and, and to have those things become strengthened and more permanent and firm within our lives from the subject of prayer all the way through to uh, staying clear of hypocrisy to all that we've looked at. Thank you for your word and its instruction. Thank you that as we live this life and as we obey it, uh, that there is never a disappointment found uh, here. And we thank you that you have brought us to the one place, your word, and to yourself uh, that that can be said of. And we thank you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not